Hey guys, welcome back to the Mind Refinery Podcast. As usual, I am your host, Kyle Bodanis. This week on the show is part one of our conversation with Top Chef Canada contestant, Adrian Forte. We talk about the show, the rise of Afro-Caribbean food, and his thoughts on how COVID-19 is changing the industry. We were going to drop this episode next week, but we wanted to celebrate Adrian's epic Top Chef run a little early. Part two of the conversation drops Monday. Before we get to the show, a little Mind Refinery news. We're happy to announce Plated Episode 2 from Cairo with Love, featuring Maha's Egyptian Brunch, will be participating in this year's Toronto Web Fest. The festival is virtual this year because of the pandemic and runs from July 10th to the 11th. For more information, stay tuned to the pod and our social media feeds. And now, without further ado, here's the show. All right, guys, we are here with Chef Adrian Forte. Adrian, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Carl. It's a pleasure, man. So how, so what have you been up to? How you been, how you been keeping amidst all this, uh, this global craziness? <laughs> I've been cooking a lot, actually. Uh, spending a lot of time at home, just hanging out with family, uh, watching Top Chef every week, and just actually something that's really fun that I've been doing is um, every week, when the episode comes out, I recreate the dish that um, I did on the show so my family and friends can try it. So it's been super interesting for them to like get that whole experience trying the food that um, you know that I made on the show. But uh, when this first had landed, um, I was I knew that like you know I wanted to do something, I wanted to help out because I knew like people who are like in a marginalized situation are gonna get hit the hardest. So I actually spent some time helping out at um, the Regent Park Community Center cooking food and handing out food to um, everyone that's just like in need. So I spent most of my time doing that in the first couple of weeks when COVID hit. But now I'm just at home because I realized that if I kept doing that, I'm going to put myself at risk and then get myself sick and get everyone else in my household sick. So I kind of had to like, you know, look at the risk versus the reward. And then I made the decision just to stay home because I didn't think it made sense to get myself sick. And then, you know, actually funny enough, the day after I decided to stay home, I came down with like a light cold, so it freaked me out a bit. <laughs> well, it's weird because like you become hyper sensitive to any like respiratory situation right now. So like in terms of these these organizations, you know, that are helping vulnerable people, how are they doing amidst this whole thing? Oh man, so essentially what ended up happening is um a lot of the people who usually work at these places, they don't they rather stay home and just, you know, collect syrup because they have families, you know, a lot of them are middle age. It's a lot of like single women that work as like caseworkers or organizers for these organizations. So a lot of people end up taking involuntary um, layoffs because they just don't want to risk getting themselves or their kids sick. So that's where I came in or like my other colleagues came in where we stepped into a role where it wasn't just predominantly cooking, but you know, we're basically not just frontline workers, but we're outreach workers now. We're working with people in low-income community housing and we're handing out meals to them and making sure they're fed because when you think about it, these are the people that are going to be affected the most because not only do they not have the resources or the finances to be able to buy hand sanitizer and stock up on food. So it's like, they're like the forgetting people out of this whole situation, right? Like they're not being taken care of. Even beyond that, how have you, like, how have you felt the industry, you know, the culinary industry has dealt with this situation. What have you? What are your impressions of it? Uh, I feel like it's, it's it's both good and bad. Like some of my friends who have restaurants, um, you know, they made the decision to close because they didn't see the benefit of staying open when you know your your revenue 
have decreased by like 70%. And then the ones that chose to stay open are doing like curbside pickup or delivery or stuff like that. But even when you do curbside pickup or even uh, when you do delivery with like some of the larger apps, you're not making that much money because a company like Uber, like the larger companies, they're taking 30%. So 30% off the top. And if you know anything about the food industry, you know that your what your bottom line is. You know your profit's only five percent, five or ten percent on a good day. You know if if your food cost is in line, if your labor's in line. So the fact that these companies are taking thirty percent off the top, like that is you're not really making money. You're just staying open to stay open at this point. So you know I'm kind of conflicted because some of my friends decided to stay open, and some just handed the landlord the keys and said, you know what, this is it because it didn't make sense to continue business. Which I kind of agree, right? I've, I've been there before. I've had restaurants that have um that were successful for, for a period of time and then, you know, circumstances change. So yeah, everyone's just adjusting differently, assimilating. Some people have gone the catering route. Some people have gone like, you know, the meal prep route. There's just so many different things you could do in our industry. But for the most part, the bigger companies and the, the third party meal companies are the ones that are profiting because they still get their 30% regardless of whatever's happening. Right. So I did see that a lot of like Janet Zuccarini, for example, she's speaking up and she started this movement where she's telling people that they need to support the local food delivery platforms and not the international ones because the local ones are keeping the money within our economy, right? Because essentially what's happening is with all the restaurants being closed, it, it, the, the economy is crumbling. So we have to keep our dollar within Canada, which is super crucial post-COVID, right? We have to start thinking about what's going to happen after this is all over. So it's, it's very important that when you're buying anything, not just food, you keep, you're circulating the dollar within, our, within the Canadian economy. I think this has been an unfortunate way to kind of educate the public about, you know, margins in the restaurant industry, because you hear some people who really, really complain about pricing and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they realize that even some of the restaurants that you think are are financially sound, like unless you're selling a boatload of alcohol and at multiple locations, you're not like you're not going to be able to survive something like this you know I'm, I'm just wondering as to what you feel the future of the industry is going to be given this whole situation for years i told people that ghost kitchens are going to be the future of food right so at that time people didn't know what that meant and this is like this is not me being like nostradamus and predicting covid this is me just thinking ahead of times being in an industry for a long time and knowing that our industry as a whole needed an entire overhaul right like we know that the margins are slim. We know that if your labor's off or, you know, you have an unforeseen expenditure, your business might not make it to the next month. Like I've been there before. So, you know, it's, it's rather unfortunate that people had to come to this realization because of a national pandemic or a global pandemic. Yeah, it's just, it's kind of crazy to think about, but I've been saying for years that, you know, ghost kitchens are the future. Like I saw it in LA, I saw it in other cities. And I even had a ghost kitchen myself as a test. Like I did an experiment with uh, Uber Eats at the time to see how it would pan out. And I just knew this was always going to be the future. So I think that's what's going to happen. It's going to be very difficult for people to be able to afford the rent, especially with how Toronto is right now. And, you know, the the rental crisis, rents are so high. It's going to be so hard. Like landlords are not going to be able to find tenants. So people are basically going to end up renting on a as per need basis like places like kitchen 24 where you can rent the space as you per as as you need it those places are going to thrive because essentially your restaurant is not going to have a brick and mortar it's going to operate on an as per need basis even for catering so i think that's definitely the future of the industry and when it comes to actual like physical 
brick and mortar restaurants, you know, we're still going to have to physically distance. We're still going to have to have, you know, plexiglass up and all this stuff. It's not going to be the same dining out. So I don't feel like people are going to gravitate towards that or run to go dine out right away because it's just, it's not the same experience, right? Yeah, I think people overlook the fact that, like, how much the brick and mortar overhead creates. And even across all industries now, you're seeing people working at home and I think realizing that maybe the reliance on these massive brick and mortar institutions, you know, it's it becomes like an albatross, so to speak, because it weighs you down. And the second you can't pay rent, uh, you know, you you know you have a big issue. And it's uh, this, again, you know, it's it's a, it's an industry that's built like a house of cards, and something like this, you know, obviously is going to have a massive effect on it. So I feel like you have to. There has to be a reevaluation of what this is in a hope to build better, stronger restaurants and institutions that are good for the future, so to speak. I agree, man. The infrastructure, it's just, it just doesn't work, right? And that's what this pandemic has shown us. Like, for example, like even pre-COVID, I had a restaurant, AF1, on college, and my restaurant was busy all the time. I had lineups. People were waiting hours to eat my food. And, you know, at the time when I took over the space... I knew it was going to be a challenge. I knew how many customers I'm going to have to feed every day to be able to pay my rent and pay my staff and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I still had challenges because I had unforeseen expenditures. My landlord, my landlord would come with like a water bill for $10,000 or, you know, I would maybe have to hire a plumber that month because something broke and those little expend expenditures add up. And then I'm not able to pay my staff or pay my supplier because of little things like that. So it's like, you know, unless you have like six months of working capital, it's very hard to stay open as a restaurant. And that's why the mortality rate for restaurants pre-COVID is so high, right? It's because every, the margins for error is, is so large, like it's insane. So we need an overall like, you know, restructure of the hospitality industry as a whole, if this is going to continue. I also think that there is a responsibility of the landlords as well because a lot obviously businesses are at the mercy of their landlords and in order to keep business going having your hand out in order for these to survive to work for the overall economy i think that maybe if there was some you know criticism in terms of the way the government handles it is not supporting this situation so it's a combination of not really figuring out how to support the situation along with you know systemic issues with how the you know the restaurant industry is set up which is too bad because there is a like the restaurants in this city and i think it's doing the best it ever had been prior yeah. to this it, you know it kind of now we're in like kind of a soul searching situation yeah man it sucks because pre-covid toronto's food industry was thriving there were so many like amazing restaurants that were killing it i was very happy to be a part of the food industry there were so many like really good chefs there's so much diversity a lot of different multi-ethnic foods it was awesome. And then this happens. And then a lot of those places are not going to survive. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the restaurants that, you know, I've known to grow in love, they're not going to be around anymore because of this whole situation. And, and, you know, we can't really just blame COVID. We have to look at the entire infrastructure and the makeup. And like you said, it's, it's a lot of systematic issues, right? Of the landlords just being heartless. They don't care. They don't care if, you know, you don't have any money or they don't care about the situation. They just care about their portion of what they need to receive. So, it's 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 kind of messed up to think about but like i've I've been there i've experienced it personally where you know i've received invoices for 
random expenditures. And I'm like, man, like, you know, I just paid all my staff. I just paid my suppliers. And now you're looking for me to give you $8,000 for a water bill. Like, you know what I mean? So it's just like, it's crazy to me. Instead of like being a landlord, you have to work together is what I think needs to happen. Like even my dad, for example, he owns like a, a automotive business. And he was saying to me like, yeah, I'm going to have to close the business because like, I can't, I can't pay my rent. Right. Like, you know, what am I going to do? Pay my rent and then not be able to pay my mortgage. Like that's just not a thing or be able to buy food. And I was speaking to him a couple of days ago and he's like, he called his landlord and handed him the keys and said, here you go, man. Like, good luck. And his landlord's like, no, no, let's work it out. Like, you know, let's figure something out. You can make up like some sort of payment arrangement or pay me a portion of what you're paying before or Let's work together. Let's be business partners is what his landlord said, right? So but that's the kind of attitude that landlords need to have that are involved in the hospitality industry going forward. It can't just be about like them and making money because at the end of the day, you know, if they're charging you $8,000 a month for rent, their, their, their mortgage is definitely not $8,000 on the building, right? No. So it's just about them having this lifestyle or, you know, they're, they're living off of that money essentially. So they shouldn't be banking on that. They should have some other thing going on. Zan and I talked about this uh, when we did her podcast. She was saying that, like, she lucked out in terms of the fact that her landlord is her business partner as well. And if it wasn't for that, you know, they likely could be thinking about shutting, shuttering the restaurant, especially since they just opened. And then, I mean, and you mentioned diversity earlier. It's like we're at a point now where chefs of color and people and people who didn't get the recognition you know i've kind of been starting to get the recognition and it really sucks that some of these staging grounds for these personalities and talents are now getting snuffed out before they have really a chance to flourish most definitely man yeah i i really feel it because there's just like so much talent in the city and like you know we're on the cusp of like inclusivity not just in terms of like race and ethnicity but like um gender also there's a lot of female chefs that are just crushing it in the city you know what i mean so yeah it was just a very crucial time for the staff honestly very crucial time so i want to get into a little bit about you personally because uh i hated F- af1 uh you, i think your talent is without uh is without reproach what you know what inspired you to cook what are what got you into it what made it, it a passion of yours Honestly, I would have to say um, just my family, you know what I mean? Like most of my fondest memories are around cooking. Growing up in a Jamaican household, seeing my grandmother cook, uh, doing these big Sunday dinners every, every Sunday. I, I lived with my grandma for a portion of time in New York. So that really got me like serious about cooking. She'd go to work, she'd come home, she'd be tired and she'd still be able to go in the kitchen and like whip something up that was so amazing. So that to me was always fascinating to see her do that. I was like, man, how does she do this? It, it, it felt like magic to me at the time because I was like still young, right? Yeah, it's definitely, I would definitely say my family inspired me. Everyone in my family knows how to cook. All my cousins, all my uncles, aunts, we all cook. So when we lived in Jamaica, there was a lot of us, and my grandmother had seven kids. So it was a lot of us in the house, right? So everybody was just cooking. It was insane. <laughs> it was every week every day like someone else would cook is, is there any dishes that stood out in particular that kind of did it like what was the favorite growing up i would say oxtail i I'll, like we, we had certain dishes that was uh basically a ritual on specific days like i know on a saturday i would get some sort of soup 
that's just how it is in a Jamaican household. Like you can ask anyone who's from a Jamaican background. Saturdays are for soup. So you know for a fact you're gonna get soup on Saturday. It could be anything from um, a chicken soup or a seafood soup or what have you. Or you would get um and then Sundays you you get a big dinner. So Sundays was always a day where you'd have multiple different proteins. You'd have jerk chicken, you'd have curried goat, you'd have oxtail. But I always look forward to oxtail. That's literally my favorite thing to eat. So yeah, I'd always look forward to Sundays just because I knew there were gonna be there's gonna be multiple different proteins. And I always look forward to the leftovers during the week. I would bring stuff to school with me for lunch. So I, I always look forward to Sundays. And I always knew that Sunday morning where we're gonna either get porridge, which I love, like so many different types of different Caribbean styles of porridges, or you would get ackee and sawfish with like fried plantains, fried dumplings. So I always look forward to that. Sunday was my favorite day of the week, knowing that there's gonna be a big dinner and a really, really like delicious breakfast also. So heavily influenced by your Jamaican roots, how did they combine, like what did that combine with to put together kind of the base of your culinary philosophy? Like, was there a eureka moment where you were like, I can do this and, you know, I kind of see how I want to express myself through cooking? Man, it's so funny. I spent their early, it's like, it's just funny how, how life is. So earlier on in my career, I used to work for like a catering company. It was the Caribbean catering company. And, you know, when I finished culinary school, that was like the only people who would hire me because I didn't have much experience, right? So I spent time doing that. And then that was in 2009. And during that time, I was like, man, I don't want to cook Caribbean food. Like, I'm not going to, you know, accomplish all these things that I want to do cooking Caribbean food. I'm not going to win a James Beard Award or I'm not going to open up a Caribbean restaurant and get a Michelin star for it. So um, I started to gravitate more towards like the classical French training. So I wanted to work at all these different French restaurants and work at gourmet restaurants and do all those things because in my mind, I thought to myself, that's what is going to make me excel as a chef. Little did I know that I was going to end up right back here making the same type of food I grew up eating. Um, not necessarily elevated, but just like my own interpretation because I feel like food is an expression of you. So if I make it's, it's, it's like important to your, 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 your food story and your journey, right? So if I make, if I do like a, a Jamaican pizza, for example, right? Obviously pizza is not um, native to Jamaica, but I spent some time in New York. I ate a lot of pizza while I was there. So New York obviously holds a special place to me. Uh, pizza is very important to New York culture. So if I make a Jamaican pizza, I'm not saying, hey, this is native to Jamaica or this is Jamaican cuisine. But it is Jamaican cuisine because I'm Jamaican and I grew up eating pizza while I lived in New York. So I'm doing my interpretation of a pizza. And I really feel like food is all, like the culinary arts is also like regular art. You know what I mean? Like it's your, it's open for interpretation. So you might look at, you might look at a, a piece or a painting and you might see leaves, right? And I might see airs. I might see something completely different. So I feel like that's how food is it's open for interpretation. So when it comes to my culinary philosophy and my cooking style, I do cook predominantly Afro-Caribbean with, with Afro-Caribbean um, ingredients. Um, and I do use Afro-Caribbean techniques, but it's influenced by like the world. It's, it's, it's globally influenced, right? So that's how I arrive at these different things that I do. And yeah, I feel like it's very representative like, of my upbringing. Like everything always relates back to my food story and how I arrived at a certain dish or how I arrived at a certain recipe. It's, there's always a story behind 
any dish that I create. I never just make something and be like, here, here's this. There's always an explanation. I always tell people like, oh, you know how I came up with this? It's because of this story or, da, 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 or like, there's always an explanation. It's never just, I make something for the sake of making it. Funny because there's this T.S. Eliot quote that basically amounts to, you know, you have your home and where you start. And when you go out in the world and come back, you kind of arrive at your home and see what it is truly for the first time. So that's why I feel, I see that there's a lot of chefs where their story is, I started here, started with this cooking, then went off. Um, Andrew Pern, uh, his book, his book is actually one of the cookbooks we're going to talk about uh, after. He, traditional Yorkshire cooking, and then he decides to go to France and do something completely different, and then Italy, something completely different, but then arrives back at that Northern Yorkshire style cooking, and then is like, I kind of get it for the first time and how I can elevate this. You well, meant, that, sorry, continue, yes. Well, that's basically what happened with my cooking career is that, you know, I started off cooking Caribbean food. Well, my, my love affair with food started with Caribbean food, right? And then I went to culinary school and then I worked for a Caribbean catering company. And then I took all these other jobs because in my mind, I was like, I'm not going to make it cooking this type of food. And then I went out there and I, you know, I bust my ass, quote unquote. I started off working with Maple Leaf Sports. I worked at Real Sports. I spent a lot of time there frying chicken wings. I spent six months when Maple Leaf Sports first opened up um, Real Sports at the, at, the, at the games. I spent six months just seasoning, flouring, marinated and frying chicken. I spent six months doing that. And at the time, when I think about it now, I'm like, man, most people or most of the culinary students that are coming out now, they would have never done that. They would have just, you know, they would have quit because they have this sense of entitlement now when you finish culinary school that you get this amazing job. But at the time, I knew that that was preparing me for something greater. Like I knew, I knew how to fry chicken essentially, right? You spent so much time doing it. It comes back to one of my favorite books, by Michael Gladwell, um, Outliers, where if you spend 10,000 hours doing something, you become an expert at it, right? So that's always been my philosophy. So when I was doing it, every time I'd have a shift, I would go into work, I told myself, you know what, this might seem like not that big of a task at the moment. You're just flouring chicken, you're just seasoning chicken, you're just frying chicken. Because I didn't even get to actually serve the chicken. I would prep the chicken for the actual cooks because I started off as a prep cook, right? So every day, because Real Sports, they sold like hundreds of pounds of chicken, of fried chicken wings every day, right? So I'd, I'd go through like 300 to 400 pounds of chicken wings every single day, seasoning, marinating, par frying, flouring, and then, you know, cool them out on a cooling rack and then transfer them to the fridge. And then the prep kitchen was downstairs. So I'd have to take an elevator with all this on the, the speed racks up and down, up and down from five o'clock in the morning to five o'clock at night, go home, sleep, wake up, do the whole thing over again. and then those skills were transferable to when I opened up the Dirty Bird because I was doing the same thing. I was selling 300 pounds of chicken every day and I was doing literally the same thing. So, you know, those skills were transferable. So it, it really prepared me um, for success in a sense. And all those things that I learned from different restaurants and, you know, doing all the, the tedious jobs and learning certain skills, it, it, it was really an integral part of my journey, right? So you can't skip that. It's super important. I will note that when the Dirty Bird first opened, uh, I lamented the fact that I didn't need another amazing fried chicken place to ruin my health. Um, I thought it was fantastic. It's funny because you mentioned culinary school. And, you know, having been a cook that didn't go to culinary school, 
you know, in the industry, you see the culinary students coming along, and you get some culinary students who are good. I think that you cannot go from culinary school in directly onto the into the kitchen. I think you you have to do some. Because listen, they tell you they tell you how to cook things. They do not tell you how to be a cook and work online and deal with the chits all the way across and the paper hitting the floor. Like they don't like you know what I mean it's like cooking Vietnam when they you know when they come onto the line. Yeah, like it was a wake up call for me. Like I was working at different restaurants during culinary school, so I definitely saw what a kitchen was like, and I was like, holy crap! Like how am I gonna do this? You know, it was definitely a wake up call for me. I felt that. I was just, I was very obsessed with cooking. That's part of the reason, that's part of my success is that I was super obsessed. So I would finish culinary school. I'd go do my part-time job. I would come home and I'd still cook after I got home. So that just showed you how much dedication or how dedicated I was. Because for me, this is not just like a career or it's, it's literally a lifestyle. All my friends are chefs or somehow culinary related. Like it's just, I'm obsessed with the industry. That's just, it's, it's part of who I am. Right. You mentioned like also, yeah. You mentioned also that you didn't feel that you could achieve the heights you wanted at the time cooking, just Jamaican food. Do you think that there's any change to that happening? Or do you think that that is like kind of an indictment of, you know, critical perception of cooking that certain foods are exclusive, excluded. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. There's definitely been a change since then. So over the last 10 years, um, especially in Toronto, I would say, people have been more open and more accepting of other cultures. There's always been Caribbean restaurants in the city. There's always been Caribbean restaurants in any major city, right? But uh, it's not usually seen as like fine dining or gourmet or you don't want to pay, you know, an exorbitant amount of money for Caribbean cuisine because, you know, our perception of it is you get it in a styrofoam container, it's seen as like lower end, right? But that's how a lot of other cuisines are seen. Like Thai cuisine was seen like that at one point, but now you have all these amazing Thai restaurants that are getting all these accolades and they're getting James Beard awards and the chefs are the chefs are world renowned and they're getting Michelin stars and you know Filipino cuisine is doing produ- like very well this year. So I feel like it kind of takes for the community, like the actual the community for that cuisine to work collectively collectively to push that cuisine forward. So that's what I've noticed is that like, there's a lot of Afro-Caribbean chefs that are pushing the cuisine forward. New York Times did an article uh, last year about, you know, some of the best chefs in North America or from the Afro-Caribbean community. They did a, a, top, a top 16 chefs and all of them are chefs of color. All of them are from different backgrounds, all cooking different foods from their community, but it was all Afro-Caribbean. We, we got a, one of our, the first, black chef to win a James Beard award is two or three years ago. And then now over the last two or three years, we're seeing like a lot more chefs of color being nominated and winning. So it's like, and like now we, this year in particular, you have a black female chefs that are being nominated and winning James Beard awards. So yeah, we've definitely made some progress and I feel like it's a collective effort. No man's an island. So it, it takes for all of us. Cause when I read other stories from these chefs and they're, they, they, they say, they say in um, interviews, you know what, I was cooking French food or I was cooking this type of food or that type of food for years and they somehow arrived back at cooking the type of food they grew up eating and that's what they're pushing now. So it's like this collective force of like hundreds of chefs cooking the food that they grew up eating. It's not pretentious. We're not quote unquote elevating this food because to elevate it means that it wasn't worthy 
be of before until you add some sort of French technique or something other than that to it. We're just serving the food we grew up eating and we're, we're presenting it in a vessel that's more approachable to the masses, right? So that's one thing I pride myself on also is that I'm not going to compromise the preparation of the food to appeal to everybody. I'm just going to make it how it's supposed to be made. And either you like it or you don't like it. That's just what it comes down to because it's all about authenticity, right? I think part of it is that it, it started at the top where the Michelin guide and was basically shamed into expanding from the Eurocentric Yes. you know, view of cooking, right? Because like at one point, I'm trying to remember it was in the early 2000s or even the late 90s where the vast majority of Michelin-starred restaurants, especially three Michelin-starred restaurants, were mm. French and some Italian. I mean, and you get some of the middle European ones as well. Like, I mean, Germany and Austria have like really good, you know, cooking programs and such. But it's funny because you mentioned the, you know, that, you know, this food is now, you know, starting to get its due. And I think... Really, you can't talk about the culinary uh, situation in Toronto without talking about Jamaican food. What is your feelings on the place of Jamaican food in terms of the overall uh, culinary tradition in Toronto? We still don't have like, um, like in my mind, we still don't have like the litmus tests in terms of uh, Jamaican restaurants. Like we still don't have like a special restaurant where we can say, this is where you have to go when you come to Toronto if you want Caribbean food or Jamaican food, right? A lot of the places are still fast, casual, takeout, stuff like that. There is, obviously, you have, like, the Chubbies that's done by Janet Zuccherini. Um, there's a couple other places, but the ones that I really identified with that are, like, from the community, like, the chefs are Afro-Caribbean or the, sh the owners are Afro-Caribbean, a lot of those places don't exist anymore because, like we are talking about before, the systematic issues with owning a restaurant is just so hard, and you know, because people have a stigma of what Caribbean food should chart, should cost. You know, I can't sell my oxtail for 40 bucks. But if I, if I were to do it Korean style or Italian style, because those two cultures serve oxtail, I could charge 30 or 40 dollars for it because those cuisines are associated with being, being gourmet or being high end. But it's just a stigma of Caribbean food can't be that. So there were a few restaurants that were doing fine dining Caribbean and they didn't last too long because you have to try to justify your price points to your consumers where they say, hey, man, why does this cost so much? And then they'll go down the street to an Italian restaurant and order the same thing and pay that price and not complain about it. So it's just like it's just the stigma or the perception that that type of food is less than. But it's starting to change. The narrative is changing, which I'm happy about. And like I said, it just comes down to collective effort. If we put your foot down and say, no, nah, man, this is what I'm charging. Like oxtail is like eight dollars per pound <laughs> like it's you know what i mean so it's it's it always blows my mind when i when i even order oxtail like takeout from a caribbean place and they're only charging me twenty dollars i do the math right away i'm like you're literally making no money from this dish they're, yeah. you're actually you're actually losing four dollars every time you sell this so it's like it's unfathomable but the narrative is changing it takes time and i'm extremely happy that i'm part of the movement and i'm engaging the conversation and i'm inspiring you know the younger chefs that are in culinary school or they're, they're working as line cooks to you know want to cook the food they grew up because that's what it takes it just takes collective effort if we're going to change the narrative and that's with everything that's not just with food or the hospitality industry everything anything takes collective effort but i'm very happy um where we are now and where it's going to go it's only going to get better like people see me on top chef 
and cooking the way that I cook, like a lot of people reach out to me saying, man, like I'm in culinary school right now. And, you know, you're motivating me to keep at it and to cook the way that, you know, I'm cooking right now, et cetera. Like, I wish when I was in culinary school, I had someone like me to look up to because it just makes sense. You know what I mean? If I saw someone like myself on TV or doing the type of food, it would have accelerated my way of thinking it, because representation matters. Like, it's super important, right? I think that there isn't enough respect for the amount of people the Jamaican cooks in the city have fed. I mean, you know I mean? Everything is looked through a very highbrow lens. And I think as a result, there's prejudices that come from it that I think part of it is obviously due to racism. Like, I think that the legacy when Jamaican cooking gets to where it should be because the food is creative and inventive, and especially in, you are seeing that influence in Toronto cooks, no matter yeah. w- race, color, like it is by osmosis living in this city that you will get that. And I think one of the legacies of the early, you know, especially after, you know, we started, Canada started opening up borders, you started getting more Jamaican and African immigration. And you had these people like, and I'm, my family's Macedonian. We were in a, we lived on a mountain less than a hundred years ago. So my grandfather, my great grandfather came to this city and opened a restaurant and sold food, sold our food. Mm-hmm. And I think that there needs to be more respect for the infancy of these culinary trends that, you know, just really looking at how they kept people fed and what they did for the city, you know, from a culinary point of view, you know, like I really think that it needs to, you know, be respected. Well, just to put things in perspective, like four and six snack bar, for example, love that place. That's like me and my girlfriend call it um, old reliable because we go there all the time and they had um, like Caribbean doubles on their menu they had a, a whole jerked fish on their menu. So that just shows you the influence that, you know, Caribbean cuisine has on the industry, right? But oftentimes when there's a conversation about where food is going or where food trends and go, is going, we're not often included in that conversation. And it just comes back to what you said. It, it's, it comes down just to like just the, the systematic oppression and just the way how the industry is. Like even um, in the kitchens, for example, a lot of people don't know that most of the kitchens that that are being operated in the city, they're ran by Sri Lankans. Most people don't know that. You know, they might go to a restaurant like uh, like an Italian restaurant. It's mostly Sri Lankans in your kitchen. Any restaurant in the city. I've worked in so many different kitchens and people don't know that, right? So they might go to, you know, like an English gastro pub and thinking it's authentic and the menu is made by this chef and whatever. So I just feel like people need to be more, have an honest conversation with themselves and just be more open and more accepting of everybody that's just what it comes down to just being more accepted talked about the food network and being on tv i can only imagine as an individual who was blanching wings by the tens of thousands that uh it's kind of a mind fuck taking cooking and putting it on tv dude (laughs) you said the perfect word or the perfect uh, metaphor it definitely is a mind fuck people don't understand what it's like being on TV. It's, I wish every person that watches could see what happens behind the scenes. It's extremely long hours. Your call time is 5 a.m. You don't have any help. You don't have any sous chefs. You don't have any prep cooks. So when we're doing a challenge, like the barbecue challenge, for example, where we have to feed 120 people, right? We're doing it all on our own. So I'm making ribs for 120 people. I'm making potato salad. I'm, I'm, you know, 
I'm uh, I'm seasoning that many ribs. Um, like people don't get it. You know what I mean? So a lot of times you have people who sit on their couch and they're critical of um, you know, myself and my other my competitors and how we're performing, but they don't understand that like it's not easy. And if it was easy, anybody could do it, which is why it's called Top Chef, and which is why it is the premier culinary competition. It's essentially just a culinary competition, but it's filmed, but like it's real, dude. Nothing's fake. Uh, nothing's scripted. It's literally the time starts now and go. And they just expect you because they, they put a lot of time and effort into finding the right candidates. They just expect you to, to bring it because you're supposed to be the best. So you have to bring it, right? So yeah, it's, it's, it's super laborious, but it's also mentally and physically draining. It's not just about your cooking capabilities. You don't see your family for weeks. You have no contact with the outside world, no cell phones, no laptops, no nothing. Like you're just, you wake up every day, you go to the studio and you cook and you go back to your hotel and you sleep. That's it. How do you get psyched? Like, are you like an athlete where you're, you know, you're doing pump up before? Are you getting introspective? The best thing for me is all the other guys will tell you, they thought I was crazy. <laughs> so it's kind of like, I think about it like as big brother also. So, um, we basically had like an entire area to ourselves in our hotel. So I would wake up early. I would go to the gym. I would have breakfast. I would do push-ups. I would get myself like, cause I, I was an athlete during my high school days. I played football. Right. So, um, I have, I kind of still have like that whole bro, um, mentality in me. So I would just get myself like super hyped up, super pumped. I played linebacker. So you can just imagine the kind of, um, mental state you have to be in to be a linebacker, right? I play like, defensive tackle. It can, you gotta be, you gotta be a grad. You gotta hype yourself up. You gotta hype yourself. You're kicking ass every day. You're kicking ass and taking names, right? So for me, it's like, I just thought of my other contended, uh, com- competitors as, you know, the offense and I'm playing defense and I'm just trying to stop them from scoring. So I would get pumped up, go hit the weights, go hit the bench. And I'd be the first one downstairs every day in the lobby when the band would pick us up. And they would say to me, man, how the hell are you like, so no coffee, no nothing. Like, how are you so pumped up? I'm like, you have to get yourself pumped up. And then we would go to the studio, we would film. And then like halfway through the day, around like six or seven o'clock, I would just crash. I would, they have so many photos of me sleeping, like in different places. <laughs> me sleeping outside, me sleeping on a bench, me sleeping in the green room, me sleeping on a prep table. Like whenever they told us like, oh, you guys have like half an hour before you got to head back to the kitchen or if you have to prep, I would just fucking just pass out right there and then. So my other contenders have a lot of photos of me just sleeping. I was known as like, and I told them like, that was my strategy going in just to get sleep wherever I can. Right. (laughs) Oh my God. You got to stay, you got to stay in, I mean, in any cooking situation, I think the problem with cooking, you know, and restaurant culture is that you're go, go, go. And like the, the self care is always tossed to the side, but then also now it's playing out on television. It's really interesting. Like, I don't know how, like I think of me when I was a cook and I'm and I think of the more ingrained degenerate qualities of cooks that are inevitable from male, female, black, white. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean? Like do you are you able to run out and start chain smoking right away after you finish? Like I, I just remember like dusting two hundred covers and then, you know. No, after you cook, you just get whisked away to the green room, we stay in there until they tell us we can leave. It's very structured. It's very organized, it's very structured. Um, they keep, they keep everything from us. We don't know anything. So like, as I'm watching the show, I'm finding out things. I'm seeing the way how my food was received. 
I'm getting feedback. Like I'm finding out everything when you guys are finding out, right? So we cook, unless you go to judges table, obviously, and then you, you get some feedback there. Um, but for the most part, we're kept out of the dark, man. It's, it's just the nature of the show. That way we don't um, ruin any surprises or any appearances, stuff like that. But yeah, it's, it was a pretty wild experience. I would do it. I'd tell everybody, all my other competitors are like, no, it was crazy. I'd never do it. I'm like, I'd do it again. Why not? Man? It was fun. You know, as much as it was stressful, it was fun. I felt like uh, it made me a better chef overall. It pushed me. I had to think. I was alone with my thoughts a lot. I wrote down like, like that's part of the reason why I'm doing a cookbook, right? It's because when I would get back to my hotel at night around like 11 o'clock, um, that's how like that's how long our days were. Like we our quick fires are like five in the morning, and then we'd be done by 11 p.m. Right. So just think about how long that is. Yeah, that's a full set day on in film, man. That's like 18 hours. Like that's not. So think about doing that, and then yeah. if you all the way to the finale you're doing that for like um, for like two and a half months right so it's it's very laborious it's very straining but like i said it was an amazing experience because it pushed me so every night i would get back to my hotel i'd pull out my book i'd write recipe idea like I, my, my brain would not shut off because you're on just like a high from the day right like a natural high like oh my god like this happened today oh my god that happened today oh the judge just said this or i'd be sharpening my knives i just you just wouldn't sleep no you're like a prize fighter you're like going in there you're like I, it's training no sex weak legs you know in like <laughs> six hours you're gonna have to be up to do it all over again so like you just didn't want to sleep right yeah it was a, it made me a better chef it made me think about things and overall i just have like a higher quality when it comes to food overall like like in my household, there is no mediocrity. I don't know what that is anymore. Like when I cook for my family or I cook at home, it's always on some gourmet shit all the time. Like it's always high end. It's never just like, you know. The 10,000 hours. Yeah, I'm not just going to throw something on a plate. Like I'm just, I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to do something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it my best. That's just what it comes down to. How do you deal with criticism in that setting? You know what, man? I spent a lot of time taking shit from a lot of, from a lot of shitty chefs. So it, it was nothing for me. I spent a lot of time getting yelled at, barked at for making mistakes until I was in a corporate setting. When I, was, when I, for, when I worked for um, MLSE, it was different because you have a union and all that other stuff. So the chefs couldn't, uh, they had to uh, nurture you. You know what I mean? They couldn't talk to you the way they wanted to. So it was a very different environment. But when I worked at other like smaller scale operations, I spent a lot of time getting yelled at, told I was a piece of shit, I'm an idiot. So, you know, anyone who's worked the line or worked in a restaurant, you have pretty thick skin. You have to have like rhinoceros skin to work in the food industry. You can't be, you know, you can't be thin skinned. It's just not going to work out for you. And I always tell people that when I meet up and coming cooks or chefs, and if they can't take feedback, I just tell them, you know what, man, you might have to find something else to do because this is what it's going to be. I love criticism. I think it makes me uh, a better chef, but criticism when it's warranted. Like if someone tells me something that I already know, like, like if I made a dish and I accidentally oversalted the dish and I know I oversalted the dish and I tell you beforehand, yeah, I think I might've put too much salt. And then you say to me, yeah, this is very salty. Like, yeah, I just told you that it's, you know. Yeah. There's self-actualization that's necessary with it. And yeah. that's how you deal, I think, with criticism in the best way. Cause obviously whether it was cooking working in the film industry, like you're going to get that criticism. And I think the only way to sustain it and keep your ego intact, which is important if you're, especially if you're creative is to look at it as a self-improvement exercise every time. 
Definitely. And yeah. You said the perfect thing right there. It, it, you need to keep your ego intact because, you know, negative criticism wears you down. And what it actually ends up doing is it just makes you perform worse. So, you know, it, it, it does something to your self-worth. And the next dish is not going to be as good, right? So I always tell myself you're only as good as your last dish. So I make sure everything that I cook, that's why my mentality is the way it is. Like, I'm always trying to make sure that whatever I put out, whether it's at home or for an event or for a client, it's, it's great because like, especially for someone who's never had your food, that's how they're going to view you. Like, oh, this guy sucks. This meal was terrible, right? They're not going to give you the, the opportunity to, to cook for them again. You know what I mean? They're just going to tell, just going to say this sucks and that's it. And then they'll never come back. And, you know, I actually had um, a colleague of mine told me that he's like, Hey man, I came to AF11, AF11 once and, you know, it was so hyped up and all my friends told me it was amazing and the food was great. And then I came and had the food and it was terrible. He's like, I knew it couldn't have been you in the kitchen making this food because I see the stuff that you post on social media. I've had your food before. And I knew it had to be like, you know, like the underlings or the cooks that are making this food or maybe someone had a bad day. And yeah, in my mind, I didn't want to come back because, you know, this is, that was his first impression. So I always think about those things. It's like, you never get to to redo your first impression. Just, my grandma used to always say, first impression is your last impression. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Just a reminder, if you like this podcast and want to keep hearing it, subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you're not already subscribing to our YouTube channel or following us on social media, get on it. You will not regret it.